Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Rebecca Lawrence and this is Voices. In this set of interviews, I will be focusing on issues of inclusion, diversity and allyship through intimate conversations with wine industry professionals from all over the globe. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps us cover equipment, production and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Rebecca Lawrence. Today, I'm joined by Cara Bertoni to discuss the work she's doing with Lyft Collective. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Cara. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about how Lyft Collective came about and also how you came to be their vice president. Uh, yeah, so Lyft Collective uh, it was formerly Wonder Women of Wine, and the name change happened last year. But just to give you a little bit of a you know understanding and background, I think I think you also had Rania Zayat on the podcast before, and she's the founder of Wonder Women of Wine and now Lyft Collective. So the name change actually happened sort of during the pandemic, but I think it was something that was probably going to to evolve anyways, just by the nature of it. So Wonder Woman of Wine was great in, in, in getting direction for the nonprofit and, and sort of like, you know, wanting to, to pay attention to voices that just have not been heard. And historically, women's voices just don't get heard a lot in, in the wine industry or in a lot of industries, to, to be perfectly honest. And so so there was somewhat of a movement. And I believe that, you know, you you had Wonder Women of Wine here in Austin, Texas. You also had Batonage Forum in the northern part of California, Austin came about also back in 2019. So there is quite a bit of this sort of um, collection of, of, you know, grassroots organizations that were coming up that really wanted to start paying attention to some of the things that just aren't getting talked about in the everyday happenings and business of wine. So that happened in, in Previous to me joining Lyft Collective, I had actually started a local group here in Austin, Texas. Um, there was a group of us uh, women sort of in leadership roles within Austin and also women who are aspiring to have leadership roles in the wine industry in Austin, Texas. And, and so I just sort of put together a group of thought leaders, really, and sort of like, how can we pioneer and change? And and Rania was one of those people that that uh, that I brought into the circle in after many great conversations between Rania and myself, she asked if I would join Wonder Women of Wine with her as she was forming a 501c3 and needed board members. And so I sat down and had a, a meeting with the board members and it was sort of kismet. It it, it was um, sort of instantaneous. You know, you get around a group of people and you realize like, wow, okay, great. This is exactly something that, that uh, I want to be a part of. Literally the second that we get into to having a board and forming the 501c3 and getting ready for our second virtual co- or second conference that was going to happen in late March of 2020, uh, we all know what happened. So <laughs> it was some somewhat of a shock, I think, because, you know, you're one year out, you've had one actual Actual event that's taken place, um, the the conference that happened in March of 2019, which was extremely successful. And now we had more people, we had some learnings, we were going to change things, develop stuff for an in-person conference in March 2020. And when that sort of uh, fell apart during the beginning of the pandemic,
pandemic, there were so many things that were happening. There were quite a few other organizations that decided to sort of pivot quickly and and uh, move everything onto a virtual platform. Their conferences, which was great, I want to tell you that that was not some that was nowhere in in a space or or an understanding that we were ready to take on during the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I have two young children; they're now six and four, but then they were just turning five and three, so it was extremely challenging in so many respects, uh, time wise in particular, but you know, so many people are losing their jobs. Best friends, I've been in the industry for 20 years and just seeing a lot, I started off in restaurants. So seeing a lot of my friends who had dedicated, you know, a good chunk of their lives, just their jobs going poof and that's it. And then unless they, and if they had some sort of vested interest or if they were founders of restaurants or, or restaurant groups, their everything, their fortune was gone, not fortune, but you understand what I'm saying? Like everything was just gone. And so, you know, there was a lot to sort of sit and digest I think. And so when we first started having these conversations of of what do we do next? I mean, there was probably three months where we all just sat and really tried to understand what was happening in our own worlds versus, like, you know, just jumping in. And so uh, at the like middle of May is when we started having conversations. Okay, let's let's think about taking some of these some of these panels that we were going to have live and and pivot to a virtual setting. And the first one we thought about was um, diversity, equity, inclusion panel. Um, and we got on a call with what would have been the moderated one of the panelists. And we just started having sort of this open discussion. And from the time that we set the call up in May to the time we actually had the call in June, the murder of George Floyd happened. And so this set amongst like just so many different things at this point in time of how many marginalized groups there are within within the industry, but just more in particular, just in, don't have a voice. And so when we start thinking about Wonder Woman of Wine, yes, women don't have a voice in a lot of scenarios, but we're not the only ones that don't have a voice, right? So so women of color have a lesser voice than 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 white women in the industry, right? And then and so on and so forth. It, you can go down sort of a rabbit hole, but what we started thinking about and realizing is that Yes, we are fighting for something, you know, that's great and, and wanting to do things for women to help elevate them, but it's not just about elevation of women. It's elevation of marginalized groups in general. So the more that you elevate marginalized groups as a whole and as a collective, the more you can accomplish because we're not we're not separate, right? We can't separate ourselves out. We have to be able to do this as a community. And, you know, that initial conversation led to our job fair, Be the Change job fair that happened uh, first in December and then in, in April. So those conversations literally once the, the idea of the job fair uh, came up in, in discussion, it was probably about 60 days of us sort of going out, asking a couple of people, what do you think about this idea? Do you think, you know, would you be able to support this idea? And within 60 days, it was sort of like, if you don't do this, <laughs> you know, you'll be said like there, there was no, there was no way we couldn't do it. So it was something that just came, it was born and it had so much energy and so much life to it. And so many people involved in, in the helping of, of producing it that we just, we had to uh, go that way. And so once that first job fair was done, Rania really sat with for a long time looking at, you know, ideas of new names because she knew at that point that Wonder Woman of Wine, it's not that it wasn't a great name in and of itself, but it really didn't embody what we needed to be doing as a whole. So we wanted to have all voices included. And so Lyft Collective was then uh, born. 
name-wise out of that. And so we still have a, a huge women base for Lyft Collective for sure, but we have a lot more voices that are coming in and a lot more um, community members that are involved that aren't just solely women, which is which is great. I think it's really interesting to see yeah, how that developed and also that you know, you guys were brave enough to take the decision and say, you know, we, we did have this initial direction, but we recognize that there's more to be done and we can still do that. You know, all we need to do is just broaden the net a little bit and, and we can welcome so many more people and, like you say, lift so many more people in this way and give this broader understanding of what needs to be happening in the industry, the sort of changes that need to be made. Uh, I think it's really important that that you made that decision to go no we're not just going to stick with this because it's how we started you adapted incredibly quickly to recognizing the other needs that were out there I did want to ask a little bit about be the change and maybe what the feedback from that has been and the sort of ongoing impact of that because it's quite an unusual thing you don't have like inclusivity job fairs really you know and it's actually an unusual format generally I think for the industry so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what you what you hope to get from it and what you have gotten from it it's a extremely like a um, learning curve so uh, I will say that the running joke in the beginning was we're not in the business of of job fairs. We're going to do this uh, because we know it's needed in the industry. People need jobs. People are being disproportionately affected. With all of these grassroots women's organizations, you have the same thing happening in other marginalized communities. So you have Black Wine Professionals, Hue Society, Roots Fund, Wine Unify, Sci Unity, all of these different organizations that really are trying to help um, affected marginalized groups or, or breaking into the industry as a marginalized like group. How do you do that? And there are so many things that we're learning right now. I know more about job fairs now than I ever thought I, I was ever going to know in my entire life. <laughs> I know way more about online event platforms than I ever thought I was going to know uh, in my life. And, and it's great. But what I do know in the short term, what we've learned is that there's so much more that needs to be learned in, in this space. So what the idea is now is to really sort of start bringing in way more voices to this to help build it better period. Um, So what we've learned is that, or what I've taken from it, quite frankly, is that the wine industry itself is really sort of marketed directly towards consumers that aren't necessarily have any sort of marginalized background, right? So there's so many people who just don't... um, don't think about wine as a concept of, of something that they they would enjoy as a beverage. It's sort of a very specific group. And so how do you invite groups into something that doesn't really identify them as a group that should be marketed to? It, it's such, there's so many things and so many onions to like unpack on this. What we've learned is that there's there's community within each of these smaller groups that is really sort of driving this desire of wanting to change. And so the only way, there, there's there's two huge things that are happening. So we are working with organizations to, to help build a candidate base, a base of a, a group of uh, people who are looking for jobs that are of marginalized communities. We, by no stretch of the imagination, we are completely inclusive as a, as an entity. So if you are a middle-aged white man looking for a job in the beverage or wine space, wine and spirits now, come to the job fair. That's that's okay. We want we want everyone to be there. We don't want this to be 
exclusionary by any stretch of the imagination. But what we are doing is making sure that we're working with organizations that inherently have a, a base or a community that is marginalized in nature, if that makes sense, right? So what we're bringing in are, are going to be people who are looking for jobs that maybe haven't typically been in the industry. And so what we're sort of trying to, to figure out now is that like, there's, there's not a huge, like a big story about how, how do they fit in? How do you fit in when, when this industry hasn't done it? So what's happening right now? So you have this candidate base that is interested in the wine industry, wants to be part of the wine industry, has, has a great capability. So they may have come from restaurant. Maybe they came from other CPG um, consumer product or packaged goods, other, other parts of the industry, just not beverage yet. But what we're realizing is that, you know, from a top down level, we have the opportunity to bring people in, but if the culture isn't inviting how do you get them to stay? If it's not inclusive, how do you how do you get them to stay? And so that's the biggest challenge. And so the first job fair was all about let's get this messaging out there. Let's try to find jobs. But we were also in December of 2020, so we're burgeoning on the winter, the the, the big winter where nobody knew what was really going to happen. Right. So most budgets for hiring were really sort of tight for big organizations. And so you, we saw some people get hired, but we saw more people get hired probably in that March, April sort of time frame. So once budgets came out, once people were ready to like actually put in, in, put on paper how much they were willing to spend, but everybody was sort of dedicated to this, like, let's, let's change the face of the industry, which is, which is great. You know, hiring managers, HR directors, right. But really what we need is the vision to come from the top down. So it doesn't matter if you're pulling people in, if they get in and they don't see anybody else that looks like them or that thinks like them, right. Then, then, then what's the point? Right. So the second job fair really leaned into that idea of having conversations with executives. Really like, look, this isn't just about this isn't just about a feel good story. If you're not changing the structure internally or organizationally for it to make sense to include more voices and different bodies, like this is this is pointless because this is going to this is going to be an exercise. I mean, think about it this way, you know, back in the 1990s it was all about, you know, women didn't have you know, the, the the numbers weren't there like so men still made up 70% or 75% of this industry. And so everybody did this mad push to invite women in uh, in hiring women. So now we're closer to 50-50. If not women might have more more jobs. When you look at the equity of it, men are still earning 70 to 75% of the dollars, even though the numbers are the same. And that to me is like just mind blowing. So there has to be this discussion of this can't be another ticking of the box where we just bring in a bunch of bodies to say that we did this thing. It has to come from the top. There has to be a different leadership that understands what it means. Uh, and, and quite frankly, the next generation's if you, if you don't pivot now. So the second job fair was really about having these hard discussions with people at the top. And it's going to take time for that discussion to filter down. But the magnitude in which people are putting dollars towards this change internally is unlike anything I've ever seen before.
So you're seeing a lot of organizations that are out there with, with fluff who, who tick the box by celebrating pride this month by posting on LinkedIn or with an Instagram or whatever. And you see that and you sit back and, and I, and I, sometimes I have to just take a deep breath and know that, you know, that's where they're at. That's where they're at in their journey. And at least they're there and not completely out of the journey. And then you have other people who are really sort of pioneering this like want and desire for change. So uh, we had a, a leadership panel, a DEI Executive Insights Suite, where we took um, Robert Hansen from Constellation, Atira Charles from Moet Hennessy, and James Harris of HEB. That panel was so charged and poised for understanding of what people are definitively trying to make a mark like we're not going to sidestep this anymore. We are really going to implement things that provide inclusion practices within within our internal structures. There, there's been a lot of you know talk about people like uh, incorporating implicit bias training, which that's great. But if I agree, I learned about my implicit bias. What does that mean for how I am going to continue acting? Just because I know that I have implicit bias doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to change my actions. How do you change actions? Having ERG groups, great. So you have ERG groups where people can get together and talk about, you know, some of the things that they can do to change that. Those are awesome. But also when you have a microcosm inside of something as is, is big as a, is a large wholesaler, but it's, it's these small groups, they, it's a loop. It's a, like a sounding board. So like you actually don't get out, right? And so you stay sort of confined in. And I mean, internally in a lot of our, I'm not going to name names, but you have, you know, like women's groups within organizations. And inside of those women's groups, it's like there are these leadership groups where there's, you know, like someone is a woman of higher stature is supposed to pull a younger woman, uh, bring them up. If you don't have any from anyone from your executive team attending those, male executives attending those to help understand and identify what may be issues internally, you can't leave that up to women to change that. You have to be in the room listening. So I think a lot of times what happens is, is again, you throw money at this thing, you're hoping it's going to change, but if you're not involved in the process, it's not going to change. So what we're hearing now is um, that is coming down from some of these really key players in the industry. As soon as they start implementing things and they can start identifying key, like if you can grab key ideas from different, you know, industry leaders, it's, it's a matter of time. It will take time, but things will start to fall in to place. So it's little bits by little bits. And so what we're learning now, we, we partnered with Thurgood Marshall College Fund for the April event, which was amazing. And so we actually reached out to their scholars that were graduating this year for May for May graduation. And so we invited them to join the job fair, which is exciting. One of the things that I learned most about this, and, and, and mind you, the job fair happened two days after the verdict of Derek Chauvin. And so a lot of the, the candidates that would be coming in from... Uh, could be coming in from Thurgood Marshall, I think had a, a lot of our candidates had something completely else on their mind. They, they, it was, it was an interesting week. Let's put it that way for, for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that I started thinking about is that, you know, I had this idea in mind, you know, it, it's, I think 60 different colleges that they're connected with. So it's historically black colleges and universities that are public that are within the Thurgood Marshall college fund, like umbrella. 
Um, and so what we had is we were working with uh, someone, their team that sort of sits at the top, and then they would go out to each of their universities and sort of um, let everyone know that there's a job fair or come join us. What I started thinking about too is that like, well, if, if we have never as an industry really sort of catered to the desires or wants or needs or, or anything of, of some marginalized communities or, or black communities, they might see this job fair and just think, why would I, I don't drink wine or, you know, like, ah, none of my friends are in it. None of my family members are in it. Nobody's been in it. Why would I, why would I do that? You know? So there's so many ideas that I started thinking about like, wow. So for like next, next go around, it's sort of like, how do you engage that next generation to want to be a part of this industry, right? How do we become a cool industry that really under, like is trying to, you know, diversify thought in how how we are looking at humanity and how we are making sure that we're paying it back to the earth's resources as well. Like how can we be more thoughtful in how we are looking at this industry as a whole? Right. And I'm a I'm I'm a uh, firm believer in sort of benefit corporate corporation ideals, um, triple bottom line. So you're not just looking at profits, you're looking at multiple different things across the spectrum for 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 how you look at business and, and being more holistic and thoughtful about business. And so that's when I started realizing that, you know, it's not even that it's a much bigger problem on our hands, but we are so antiquated and we're so steadfast on being this is the way it's always been and this is the way it's always going to be, and you're not doing it right. You have to do it this way. You know, there's really not been a lot of opportunity for intentional like innovation really so we've just been stuck i think culturally in this industry for so long so i I, that's sort of like the next iteration of my mind is how do we make it really not just not just about bringing in marginalized groups how do we make this more holistic for everyone to want to come in to want to come in and, and be a part of this industry and that's something that is a big takeaway for me how we're how we're going to shift next with um with live collective with be the change with anything that i'm sort of working with yeah i was actually you you've managed to basically preempt all of my questions <laughs> Because I was gonna, I was gonna talk to you, ask you to talk a little bit about this this idea of, you know, it's it's not just a problem of non inclusivity and the presence of diversity, but also an environment in which all people can feel comfortable and welcomed. And this process can't, yeah, it can't just start from grassroots. It has to come from every level, I think, of the industry. Um, and I was, I was going to ask you to talk a little bit about what other changes you think should be being made in corporations. And I, I think this idea of the kind of triple bottom line is a really interesting one for people to consider. Triple bottom line, circular economics. Like when, when you think about capitalism, woohoo! I, I mean, you could dive into that conversation for hours, days, months, whatever. Um, but really all you're doing is stealing from one thing, to to create something out of out of somewhat nothing, right? So there's nothing that gives back when you look at the true capitalism model, um, and you're not you're not worried about what happens to finite resources. You're not worried about what happens to your stakeholders or the people who work for you. You're worried about people who have given you money to create this thing so that you can create more wealth for them. We have to be looking at this as a more holistic way because if you don't, I mean, 
climate climate change. Let's just we could t- we could talk about this for for again for forever. But it, in, until you see that, and what I what I'm seeing right now, and it's something that's big for me, is that I, I see a lot of universities that are actually uh, offering now in in their business classes and and schools that you know, the thought process is it can't just be about profitability anymore. And so you're seeing that dynamic and you're seeing that education happen right now. But how long before those 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 people make it up the ladder, right? So if we can somehow start seeding that, those possibilities, those conversations now at the at the executive level, right? And people start managing that up, then I think that we will see see more of that. Truly all it takes is one or two companies to make that switch in this industry. And it's going to change, I think, quickly. I mean, one of the, um, so there's a, a benefit corporation certification, B Corp certification. There's only a few wineries that have done it. So you see it more in the beer uh, industry. Um, you don't really see it so much in spirits, but Fetzer Vineyards signed on an early adopter for benefit corporation B certification, which I thought was, that was like, really? Fetzer did that? That's like, that's, I, I don't I, I you know had this idea of what I thought who who I thought would be early adopters but you have I think either Solena or maybe Sokol Bloss or somebody a couple of uh, those in Oregon Oregon's got quite a few smaller producers that are that are certified as well but all it takes is one big adopter to sort of come in and start making that shift internally because as soon as I mean if you think about it if you're working from a holistic viewpoint you your supply chain will have to to change as well. So if you're looking internally about like, oh, we need you know grape resources. Uh, let's just go do buy a whole bunch from X Y Z in Spain, right? And their southern part of Spain, there's plenty of resources, right? Let's not we don't have to worry about depletion of resources here in the U.S. I mean, in, if you start looking at them and saying, hey, I need you to tweak a few things, maybe start. Can can you guys? look a little bit of a, you know, regenerative agriculture. Can you start taking a look at a couple of different things that would better sustain our relationship and our business? It's not just about the quick profit, but it's about long-term. Once you start having those conversations, then if it's part of who you are, investors coming to you that are putting money in are also in that same mindset, right? So it's just, it's just, it brings it all the way back. And sorry, sometimes I talk and... Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great. One of the things I was going to say and um, bring up is that I think there's historically been this idea that uh, working in a holistic or sustainable way is mutually exclusive to working in a way that might be profitable. Uh, and what I, one of the things I think that I'm hoping we're going to see is that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. You know, the, you do need to make a profit as a company. You do need to be a company that can sustain itself because not least you need to be able to pay the people who work for you. But this doesn't have to mean that you can't put these things into practice. You know, that you can't start looking at more sustainable or holistic ways of working within your, your company, your, your corporation, and that by bringing those in incrementally and gradually, you can still make potentially big changes. Like you say, it just takes one large company to say, okay, we're going to change this small part of what we're doing and see what impact that has. And then suddenly there's that lovely ripple effect where that works, so it just broadens out. And I think this is something that companies 
really do need to be considering as as a sustainable business model. I believe that we're on the precipice of that right now. So I believe that there are a lot of people that they're just trying to figure out how to roll it out. That's what I think is happening. And so I think that you are going to see a couple of big business companies in the next one to two years that are going to roll out some pretty hefty plans on how they plan on, you know, combating climate change internally, but like also, you know, like making sure that that they are looking at their employees, their stakeholders of, of their business and how they can better impact and help those stakeholders. It's not just about shareholders, right? So it's about really believing in their team and um, letting their team sort of help drive what what goals they have into the future. But yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Like I, I there, there's got to be implementation. And I, I think from the conversations that we had conversations with so many different organizations and so many different executive level conversations where I just sat back and let them sort of, some people love to talk at you because that's, that was, that was their, you know, it was their microphone moment to talk to somebody about, you know, their ideas. And some of them were just that talking at you, but some of them, you could just, you could see the spark in the back of the head. Like it wasn't something that they had read and regurgitated to you. It was something that they were really sort of feeling and they, and, and they were just trying to figure out how they could, let me, I'm going to be working with these four leaders across the company to see if we can implement this and make sure that we're doing it in a correct way. And they were also bringing in other middle level management to to the conversation, which I thought was also great, right? Because if you just have this team of people of executives only thinking that that it's 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 almost this, this reverse mentorship in a way, right? So you bring down and other people have these ideas that this never get to the top because nobody ever sits down and listens, right? Which is great. So um yeah. Yeah, we could we could be at a, a really exciting point for the industry in, in so many aspects of the industry. So I'm going to lighten the tone a little <laughs> because it is the Italian wine podcast and I can't let you go without talking about Italian wine. Uh, so I wondered what your history is with Italian wine. Is maybe there a particular wine that uh, represents your experience of Italy, that's your sense of memory of Italy? <laughs> so my last name is Bertone. I'm, I'm, half, I'm half Italian and my family, my grandmother is from Naples and my grandfather he'll he would tell me that he was from Sicily but really he was from Molise but he spent like his like I want to say late teens early 20s in Sicily and so I think that was cooler for him to say Sicily than than Molise was um but uh I will say this so when I got into wine and restaurant side of things and I was working on the floor and 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 beverage director and I would go through phases right so something something would be cool so like you know all sauce was all of a sudden like you know, epiphany, mind blown, right? Like, oh my God, it's sun-kissed, you know, Riesling or or whatever, right? So you go through these moments. So then it was, you know, whether it be Germany or then you, I would go to, to Australia, wherever. There was always like this six-week thing. And I remember going through this sherry phase, which is not a good phase to go through on the floor of a restaurant. I'll tell you that. I'm sure my guests liked me, but I don't really know how much I remember from those days. So I went through all of these sort of like, you know, not ebbs and flows, just different. I was so excited about wine. And so I was always excited. Burgundy was a huge favorite. You know, I Nebbiolo, obviously, like who doesn't love Nebbiolo? Um, but I remember specifically going through this Chianti phase. I was probably 25 or 26 at the time. And I remember thinking in my head, like, okay, I'll get through Chianti. 
and then I'll be on to the next thing. But Chianti to me was such like this, this like funny thing. Cause you know, Chianti, especially at that point in time, Chianti was like, Oh, you don't drink, you know, you hear that you're not supposed to drink Chianti, but all the cool kids were drinking Sangiovese. And I was sort of like, am I supposed to like it? Am I not supposed to like it? But I fell in love with it. I mean, and, and I started doing all these classes on the different types of Sangiovese from Tuscany all over. And I'm just like, Oh my God, the idea that Sangiovese can be so different yet have this theme, no matter what area of Tuscany then you're in, Sangiovese is Sangiovese, but it's so completely different. And it's not San, like it's, it's total. And you understand in that moment why there are so many different names to Sangiovese because it's, it's got its own identity just dependent upon where it is within the region. So for me, and to this day, like, like my wife is not allowed to touch this, like she's not allowed to touch the Chianti unless I say that. And what I mean by that is like everyday drinking. Yes, I do have some of that. It's right here. And you can have this section over here, but this stuff over here, even though it says Chianti, just don't touch it. Okay. Just don't, right. (laughs) Unless I open it. That's terrible, but I'm, I'm such a lover and I'm so, I'm so nervous. Like I don't want anybody opening up one of those special, like the fact that they're doing cruise right now. Um, I worked for Folio for a minute. And so they, we had, uh, Rick Hossley had come in and Rick Hossley's cruise are mind blowing. They're mind blowing and they're so good. And so to this day, so that was 25, I am almost 43. It still hasn't gone away. Like, I love it. So, um, but Italy in general is a, just a rule of thumb. Like, you can get stuck in Italy. People people love France. And there's so many great, you know, like, this is this is Burgundy and this is this. And and, and yes, there are nuances and in, in, in things, but there's something about Italy to, like, where you can get in and you just get lost. And you're like, okay, I'm cool. I'm cool to be lost. That's fine. It's It all tastes great. I'm fine. <laughs> so, yes. Kind of exactly what happened to me. <laughs> I fell in I fell in love with Tuscan Sangiovese and that was it. Like I just dived straight in and I've I've never surfaced. <laughs> right, exactly. Like you could totally get I mean, again, if that's my like that's my uh deserted island sort of thing. When people are like, What are you gonna drink? I'm like, Oh, it's Sangiovese all day. Wait, when you want a white one and like I yeah, I guess I drink more white than I do anything else, but like but if I'm gonna be stuck somewhere and that's the one thing I have to drink, it's Sangiovese. Ah, oh, kindred spirits. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Karen, thank you so much for joining me on the Italian Wine Podcast today. Yes, thank you. Uh, it's been such an interesting conversation. Where can our listeners find you online or on social media? You can find me on Instagram and Facebook. I I'm um, don't do a whole bunch of stuff on social media posting wise, just because I have kids. So, um, I leave it, I, yeah, I, I sort of leave it up to, uh, Rania does a lot of the posting for, for lift collective and for be the change. So I sort of let her like run with it, but yes, you can find me on both of those. Yeah. So for our listeners, check out lift collective, check out be the change on Instagram, LinkedIn, their websites, all the social media. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on social media, subscribe, and of course, donate on the website so we can keep these great conversations flowing. Listen to the Italian wine podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. 
If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.